I'm just going to introduce, introduce everybody alphabetically. Okay. No, it just looks like all my honey. <laughs> That's your name? No. In here. Under okay. Name. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there's a name tag. Yes. You have name Good evening. Uh, I'm Robert Silvers um, of the New York Review of Books. I'm here to welcome you to a Penn Symposium um, on a subject of violence, imagination, myth, and America. Now, the premise of our evening is simple enough, simple, as simple as our subject is labyrinthian and shadowy. The premise is, simply, that in understanding violence, the violence that we see on every side, in our domestic life, criminal activity in the streets, in the baffling outbreaks of political terror, some of our best novelists today will have perceptions and insights that we will find nowhere else. Just as we have, in the past, learned more about crime from Dostoevsky than anyone else, and more about family hatred from William Faulkner than anyone else. Now, the writers with us tonight uh, are an extraordinary group. We're immensely lucky to have them. They're among the most brilliant in our country today, and they seem particularly appropriate for our subject. They're all widely known. I won't linger over their many works and accomplishments. There are many um, um, <coughs> awards. They've all been nominated or have received awards from national groups, critic circles, book award circles, the International Academy, the National Institute. All these things are, have been deserved and well known. And I won't linger over all their teaching posts, because most of them have taught in famous universities and in various places. Um, William Gass, who was born in 1924, has been a professor of philosophy, as well as one of uh, America's most powerful writers of novels, short stories, essays, reflections. He's the author of such famous works as Omen Said His Luck and Willie Masters' Lonesome Wife. And in his collection of stories and novellas called In the Heart of the Heart of the Country, we find a wonderfully telling picture of small town life in the Middle West, of smoldering small town life that for me casts an original light on our culture. And in his most recent novel, The Tunnel, we find a book that has violent fantasy at its center. Jane Ann Phillips, who was born in 1952 and comes from West Virginia, is the author of such 
famous books as Machine Dreams and Black Tickets, Fast Lanes, and Shelter, which was published last year. Now about that last book, she made a comment that seemed to me very relevant to our subject. I wanted, she said, to think about evil, the idea of whether evil really exists or if it is just a function of damage. The fact that when people are damaged, they damage others. Brent Staples has written about his brother Blake, a cocaine dealer who was murdered in 1986. His death, uh, Brent Staples wrote, moved him to remember his childhood and his family. What, he asked, do we owe our families? What part of our past shackles us? His collection, Parallel Time, is a memoir of growing up black and American and the strengths and the vulnerabilities of the world he, he came from. Perhaps more than anyone else here, he has a position from which he can be heard on some of these subjects, for he is currently a member of the editorial board of the New York Times. Now, Robert Stone was born in Brooklyn in 1937, and he served in, Navy, in the Navy in the 1950s. One finds in his books, at least I find in books, corrupt, nightmarish places, whether New Orleans in the Mardi Gras, in the hall, his book called The Hall of Mirrors, or in the drug-dealing world from Vietnam to California that one finds in Dog Soldiers. And in his work, I see a fascination with the makings of frustration and ambition in American characters, <coughs> as in his novel, Out of Bridge Reach. Now it seems fitting that the moderator of the discussion among these brilliantly imaginative writers should be one of our most brilliantly imaginative American historians. Sean Wilentz, has work, his work has been close to the concrete lived experience of American workers, American poor people, and offbeat visionaries, whether in his book called Chance Democratic on New York City and the Rise of the American Working Class, or in his recent book written with P.E. Johnson, The Kingdom of Matthias, a story of sex and salvation in 19th century America. And so I'm very happy that we have been able to persuade these gifted people to be with us, and very happy to introduce to you Sean Willens, who will be our moderator. Sean Willens. Thank you for that very gracious introduction. I thank you for all the panelists for that gracious introduction. I'm here as the fact monitor, I think. Um, the historian among the, the, the gifted novelists. And uh, um, I must say, it's uh, with some trepidation that I appear with so, so much imaginative genius uh, on the same stage. Um, 
mostly I, I think about um, American history. And it's along those lines that I wanted to try and frame our discussions uh, this evening with just a couple of quotations of some other well-known writers asked by the New York Times to talk about uh, the character of American violence. And uh, if I can get my paper straight, I'll read them. Number one, there seems to me more truth than we care to admit in the famous dictum of D.H. Lawrence that, and I'm quoting from memory, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It exists, oddly enough, along with a remarkable tenderness about life under certain circumstances. It also exists along with a great readiness to declare ourselves for law and order, to admonish against violence so long as we are not expected to do anything about it. We have now a mountain of fresh sermons against violence, but any zealot, any maniac can still buy a gun if he has the price. This is one of the sacred rights of American manhood, and it will be hard to give it up. Quotation two. This is on America's special violent characteristics. I would say that America is part of an international culture of violence to which we have made distinctive contributions. The nations belonging to this culture differ much in the style and character as well as in the quality and quantity of violence they contribute. The brutality of success at any price, the national cult of making it, the escalation in verbal and literary violence, and the progress of the mass media in communicating violence owe much to American know-how. But that is, this is not to deny that other countries, Germany, Russia, China, Indonesia, and India, for example, have their own legitimate cl claims to distinctive contributions. And finally this, if I can find it. Yes, finally this. The fact is that the present state of domestic disorder in the United States is not the product of some destructive quality mysteriously ingrained in the substance of American life. It is a product of a long sequence of particular events whose interconnections our received categories of self-understanding are not only inadequate to reveal, but are designed to conceal. We do not know very well what kind of society we live in, in what kind of, uh, what, and what kind of history we have had, what kind of people we are. We are just now beginning to find out the hard way. And the grasping at comprehensive self-characterizations, even on flattering ones, is but, an indication to do, that is but an indication that we do not want to learn too much about ourselves too quickly. I quoted from Richard Hofstadter, C. Van Woodward, and Clifford Geertz. Those remarks appeared 27 years ago, on April 28, 1968, in the New York Times. So here we are again, 27 years later, not, alas, Richard Hofstadter, and not either Woodward or Geertz, at least I don't see them there, but here we are again, in effect, 27 years later, talking about American violence and its links to the American imagination. And following up on what Geertz said at the end, I'm not so sure, at least from what I've been reading, that we're much further along now than we were then. As the backdrop to what our discussions will be about tonight, we're certainly not in the 
grips of the breakneck chaotic energies that we felt in 1968, still there has been increased talk, increased attention through the late 80s and early 90s about all sorts of issues connected to violence. As Bob said, racial turmoil, domestic violence, all across the board, spiked up by political talk about violence, whether it be the question of violence in, uh, on TV or in the movies, or about gun control, or about Waco. All of this was out there simmering, and then boom, Oklahoma City, the deadliest single act of terrorism in American history. In the aftermath of that, an extraordinary profusion of pious rot appeared in the media about the end of American innocence. My first reaction to all of that is, <clears throat> was at the time, what's so hot about innocence? But then when I thought about it more, I realized that I was experiencing something like a kind of reverse deja vu. That whereas in 1968, Americans or the American, American commentators and pundits were caught up in a paroxysm of uh, self-flagellation about what a horribly violent people we were, somehow something had happened to reverse it entirely, to give Americans the impression that somehow none of that had happened. In fact, of course, we lost our innocence long ago, and it's about time we lost our innocence about that fact. Anyway, still, here we are again. I think it's important before we start, in terms of framing the conversation, that we be clear about what exactly we're talking about. Because the, the entire subject of American violence, let alone its connections to the American imagination, always threatened to fall into a gigantic morass of talking about everything and anything. Things get conflated, which ought not to be conflated. Personal and political violence, for example, are they the same thing? Under the rubric, everything from Timothy McVeigh to um, the woman in South Carolina, um, 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 all sorts of incidents, Rodney King, both the cops and the, the rioters. All these things get thrown, together, thrown together when perhaps, in fact, they shouldn't be. What are we talking about? There are all sorts of distinctions between violence and the presentiments of violence. Is there a difference? How can we distinguish between coercion and violence? Or ought we make that distinction at all? The thing itself opens itself up into, the thing itself being violence, the subject, opens itself up into conversations about race relations, family life, the American individual, the imperial self, our lack of any central political authority or respect thereof, warfare, the character of American warfare, American religion, particularly it's, an apocalyp it's apocalyptic sectarian strains. And then comes the other part of the, of the equation or the other part of the conversation, imagining violence. What is there that characterizes the ways that high and low culture in America, if I can be so bold as to use that old-fashioned locution. High and low culture imagines various kinds of violence. Here I'd like to raise a point just as a bit of an appetizer that actually struck me after Oklahoma City and that uh, Adam Gottmik wrote about in, in The New Yorker about the theatrical or the quasi-artistic qualities of American violence itself. That rather than see these two things as a part, the history, the facts, the thing, and the imagination, 
I wonder if there's some sort of loop that Americans have never quite come to terms with. When I think of American violence or certain kinds of American violence, I think very quickly of some grisly but nevertheless theatrical modes. American lynching, right through the middle of the 1920s, was a form of popular entertainment in parts of the South. The Wild West show brought fighters from the frontier right to the stage and then sent them back again. Um, I won't even mention Ford's theater or the theatrical qualities of certain kinds of gang warfare right from the middle of the 19th century to today. The point is perhaps not to see the imaginative and the real as completely separate, but as feeding off one another in perhaps particularly American ways. But that's just an appetizer. I really want to get to our, 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 our panelists tonight. So let me begin. Um, should we go in alphabetical order, I guess? This would be, would be the way to do it. Let me begin with William Gass. I want to proceed rather rapidly through a kind of outline of what I think of as the genealogy of violence because although there are many kinds of violence and uh, it's passed on and reproduced in many ways, I think mainly in this country as perhaps in others, it is passed through families. They may not create it, but they pass it on. And so it is a generational kind of thing uh, and I'm going to go through this outline very rapidly in terms of, uh, of just points, and then uh, perhaps one can imagine the ways in which the various uh, media, arts, writers of various kinds and so on might plug in uh, to elaborate or feed on or develop uh, any of these, these points. And I want to imagine then uh, a young uh, child, let's say John Paul Jones. Uh, and uh, he is going to uh, experience all of these things and end up a violent creature. First, he has to experience probably four preconditions of uh, becoming, in that sense, violent. Um, first is the domestication of violence, which involves at least three different elements, the beating and intimidation of women and children, neglect of the handicapped, aged and infirmed, a situation in which the weak prey upon the weak. Uh, secondly, family poverty and failure due to race and other forms of discrimination, economic depression, outmoded skills, poor education, and just plain incompetence. Uh, the third element of family rationalizations and blame, lies, evasions, and excuses. Uh, from my point of view, there is no such thing as a good excuse. Um, then there's the socialization of violence. Violent sports open to the poor and depressed in particular, uh, peer pressure in gangs, adult recruitment into crime, macho ethic, pop culture expressions of violence, depictions and so on of that, not so much as a cause, but as a legitimization and habituation. The third is the politicization of violence protection needed from protectors, the violence of police, strikes, protests, and other forms of violence, terrorism, pogroms, and other forms of state-organized discrimination, war and diplomacy, uh, the problem of the ethical citizen 
in the dishonest state. And finally, of the four in this group, the romance of violence, media hype and attention, exploitation of violence by the arts, idolization of violent sports, historical and educational revisionism, trying to glorify war and other evil state actions, which are lies parallel to the ones the family uh, is inclined to develop. Uh, so we find our, our child in, in involved uh, in a four-perimeter uh, environment of this kind of violent activity and talk and rationalization. Then we come to the second stage of this, which is the, the ladder, which many people speak of as the ladder of success, but which for uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, person I'm talking about is the ladder of failure. First, there's economic failure. John Paul Jones fails his tests, doesn't make the team, doesn't get a job, doesn't get promoted, uh, gets fired. Uh, or there's social failure. Jones gets dumped by his girl, doesn't get into the crypts. Uh, drops the winning pass, gets his girl knocked up, gets arrested, does time. Um, then there is the witnesses of failure, one of the fundamental functions, I think, of the development of, uh, of violence. Um, if, uh, if you failed in secrecy, it wouldn't be quite so bad, but you always have a family watching you. So the first, of course, witness of failure is the family. Then there's the co-workers. That's why you take your machine gun in and kill the postal people, uh, the peers, and so on. Uh, then there's the deflection of blame. Um, we've seen this throughout history. Uh, the Germans didn't lose the First World War. They were betrayed. Jesus was betrayed. Everybody is betrayed. They don't fail on their own. So by rationalizations of various kinds, blame for failure is deflected, uh, even when they're very, in a sense, good reasons for failing. Uh, they fall into the same trap as the bad reasons. Uh, and you assign always external causes. Uh, then there is also the failure of the totems. Um, you, uh, you develop totems, whether they're a natural one, so to speak, or, or uh, uh, artificial ones. Team, your team loses, you get drunk and beat your wife. Um, gambling is a very important uh, way of determining whether the metaphysical fate is in your side or against you, uh, and so on. So the failures of the totems come along to uh, add to the misery. And the initial consequences obviously are the lowering, total lowering of self-esteem, insecurity hidden by bluster and bullying, and then patterns of excuses as failure repeats itself building into paranoia-like theories. Um, and then, of course, you begin not to hang out with the witnesses to your failure, but with other failures. Um, male bonding, drinking companions, uh, who in those groups begin to select the talismans of their sort of illusory power, for instance, guns and cars, and so on. Uh, increasingly, uh, because of the witness situation, there is a feeling of entrapment uh, and a desire to escape by running away uh, from that entrapment uh, into a, a kind of world where you'll be surrounded by other failures. Domestic rebellion then takes place, um, 
Wife becomes crabby, cold, assertive, disobedient. The children are disobedient, secretive, run away, start to take drugs. Uh, and uh, then you have the choice of enemy in the family. Uh, and uh, this will vary, of course, due to your sex or uh, upbringing. Uh, and this may be generalized, that is, if you decide it's your wife, uh, which often happens, uh, you may end up generalizing to all women. Uh, you have the choice of enemies generally, then one in the family, the choice of enemy in society, the boss, the whites, the Asians, the Jews, or you have the choice of a political enemy, and that's often the government itself, which is spending a great deal of the time uh, making you fail, uh, commies <laughs> or something of the sort. And then the highly developed sense of injustice which results, an injustice without remedy. Uh, this is what I call the Captain Ahab effect, uh, because the whale has done it, but there's no police to arrest whales. Uh, <clears throat> uh, frustration increases alarmingly, failures multiply, bro uh, brooding is constant, drinking increases, gambling, hanging out, peer reinforcement, and soon, of course, domestic violence, gangsterism, crime, etc. All done, too, in a sense of retribution, uh, not so much that it is a criminal activity, that you have it coming and they have it coming and so on. And then finally, uh, the multiplication. Um, uh, if you're beating your wife, for example, uh, you're mad at your wife twice. First, because she's disobeyed or done something. What she's really done is seen how lousy you are. Um, but uh, she's, uh, she's disobeyed and so you strike her and now you're mad at her for having she has made you hit her. Um, and so we are now back uh, in this situation as creating the conditions for the continuation of violence in the family uh, of the children, perhaps, for instance, who are witnessing now this new group, and so it goes. I think um, we might start by asking ourselves what Americans love, what myths and stories feed our perceptions of ourselves as a changing people and much divided community. The source of myth worldwide is often violent or cataclysmic, but its reduction as an idea that permeates and shapes a culture often becomes romanticized, simplified, removed from its context and reality. Myth then loses dimension. Myth can become dangerous justification, a costume or disguise that's up for grabs. The inverse of the myth is always worth our attention. And in America, the inverse of the myth can become a kind of politically correct myth, a myth equally reduced. When we talk about American myth, we're talking about the stories indigenous to a baby country a big country geographically isolated by its own adherence to and achievement of manifest destiny, a country awash in amnesia and ignorance, a country in the habit of distancing itself from its own history or context as quickly as possible, a kind of immigrant consciousness. We were a primal wilderness. We were a colonial backwater. 
We were a refuge for those unwelcome or endangered in older, more static cultures. We engaged in the genocide of an indigenous population. We were a frontier country in which some men, if not women, could breathe, could homestead their own land, could cut loose from whatever context defined and limited them. They became loners, carving out a place. On the frontier, community might consist of communication between individual homesteads. Those homesteads would eventually multiply into towns and cities, but the credo of each man for himself, responsible finally to himself, has persisted as an American birthright. Individuals who surrender individual interests to those of the community or who believe that their interest is better served by nurtured, historically grounded community are the exception in this, quote, new world. We have served as that new world to the likes of Christopher Columbus and Miles Standish, to the forebears of Sacco and Vincetti and the Rosenbergs, to cyclical waves of immigrants, and we have closed the portals of that new world to boatloads of turned away refugees, whether those refugees fled Hitler's terror or the terror of Haiti's Tantan Makuts. We have valued always individualism, the more rugged the better, over community. Our cultural heroes include gunslingers, cowboys, the cavalry, sports stars, rock stars, movie stars, stars of nearly any stripe. Our cultural heroes do not include writers and artists, classical musicians, labor organizers, elementary school teachers, or politicians. We're a complex mixture of various peoples and tribes, each more and more distanced from a history, a specific culture or set of beliefs. We become American by entering the American fray, a kind of swirl or maelstrom characterized by desire for mobility and possibility rather than by any particular morality or set of values. How does violence operate in the American imagination? If we think of the imagination of a people as similar in nature to Jung's idea of a collective unconscious, we might come up with an imagination of violence which is really changing. In the past, say in the first 200 years of America's existence as a country, we thought of ourselves as unafraid of violence. The frontier mentality lends a certain credence or rationale for violence, the right to bear arms, to protect one's turf, the right to ownership of a place, spiritually and physically. Now we live in an America whose collective imagination is a web of images more or less instantly communicated by sophisticated technology, we see the same pictures. O.J. in his seat listening to testimony, Richard Rosenthal being arraigned, Susan Smith in custody, <laughs> ruins in Oklahoma City. The images tend to shock or numb us or polarize us because the dialogue, the exchange of words needed to give the pictures dimension doesn't happen in any collective fashion. I believe that the issue of American violence has been addressed in depth only in American literature. And it seems a pity that so few Americans have the presence of mind, the education, or the interest to read it. American literature does not present a flat, reduced, shock value, confusing version of a complex issue. 
how many dimensions of violence in America are dealt with in, say, the tunnel, or parallel time, or Outer Bridge Reach, or Huckleberry Finn, or Blood Meridian, or The Americans, or The Scarlet Letter, or Typical American, or The Invisible Man, or Winter in the Blood, and we might go on and on. I don't think the question is whether or not American literature has aptly or variously enough represented the concept or the reality of American violence. I refer to the violence of physical confrontation as well as to the violence of coercion, whether played out in racist or sexist terms. I refer to the violence of American poverty, whether spiritual or material, the violence of American domestic abuse, the violence of American child abuse, the violence of American political games and manipulation. American literature is uniquely American precisely because it represents, within specific worlds, within story and character, the American project from start to finish, from primal landscape to right now, tonight, here on the Avenue of the Americas. Chekhov once replied to an irate reader by asserting that it was the writer's responsibility not to solve a problem, but to state the problem correctly. That is our responsibility. It is our concern that Americans have little understanding of their own history, that Americans don't read, by and large, American literature, or feel they need to, that Americans are preternaturally isolated in an assaultive sea of information. It is these concerns we gather to discuss. I'm going to uh, have to chop this up a bit so as not to repeat some things my colleagues have said and to underscore others. I begin, uh, as I usually like to do, with a story. And this story takes place approximately five weeks ago on the corner of Court and Warren Street in a prominent section of Brooklyn. It's a tree-lined street. They're brownstone, very low buildings, very habitable, wonderful place. There are three or four persons sitting on a sidewalk cafe having coffee before they go to work. On the corner, a couple stops to fight. The woman is approximately 40 years old, short, shapely, plump, bleach blonde hair. The man is approximately 20 years old, bare-chested, bare muscular, the kind of muscles you get from pumping iron in jail. They are both, I know, ethnically Italians. The, man said, the woman says to the man, you're a piece of shit. I should kill you right here. I should kill you right here. No, I should have someone else do it. She puts her finger to his face. I should have someone else do it. The man is like pumping his muscles. He's turning around. Christina, Christina, you can't threaten me like that. Because if you threaten me like that, everyone in your house is going to be dead beginning with you. <laughs> this goes on, the people having caffeine, ca caffeine, we're doing our caffeine, this is like 8.30 in the morning. We're doing our caffeine, we're watching this at a distance of about 10 feet. This goes on in which the threat of a contract hit passes for, back and forth between, between these two persons at least 10 times. Finally, as the writer, I just put down my cup and give them my full attention. 
And Christina, you know, so this is a piece of shit she gets. She has her bag and she goes back into her house. He crossed, the man crosses the street. And when he finally crosses the street, the, the, those of us sitting there, we laugh out of kind of release of tension because it looks for a moment as though someone's going to be killed. In America today, when two people stop on the street and say, I should kill you right here in 1995, you tend to lend some credence to that <laughs> these days. I mean, maybe 10 years ago you didn't, but in 1995 you lend credence. Someone's going to produce a gun and kill someone. The man walks across the street. We all laugh. He goes, what? What? What are you fucking laughing at? That's my Brooklyn accent. What are you fucking laughing at? He comes back. And he says, he passes by me because I'm too big. I'm about a head bigger, maybe 25, 30 pounds bigger than him. And he goes to the shop owner and he says, fucking laughing, I'll burn down your shop. I'll have the cops arrest me, but I'll be out by the end of the day. So you reckon this is a bad imitation of Robert De Niro kind of going on. So you know, we, we calm him down, he leaves. Later on, he comes back to the shop owner and he apologizes. He's as gentle as a lamb. He's apologizing. He says, listen, you know, Christina, turns out Christina's his sister. <laughs> Christina has caught him in the house. You know the word stooping? Has caught him in the house stooping some neighborhood girl. Christina's a good Christian, just besides the fact she's going to put a hit on her brother. She, she's a good Christian, and she's upset by this. And so she tells him she should kill him on the corner of Court and Warren, where the brownstones average like $600,000. Um, and it's quite a drama. Well, I live in Brooklyn. I've been living in Brooklyn for 10 years, all the 10 years I've been in New York. It's a very interesting place. I live in Italian ethnic Brooklyn uh, near the docks. Uh, I live within walking distance of St. Mary's Star of the Sea, which is a church which was uh, the parish of Al Capone. I live near the docks where Al Capone came of age and someone's going to dispute that, I know, but we'll talk about it after. Um, I lived on near the docks where Al Capone came of age as a leg breaker. Um, I also live at a very short distance, and if you know Mr. Gallo, I mean no offense. I lived near um, one of the relatives of Joey Gallo, who was from the Colombo uh, family, the fellow who was assassinated at Umberto's Clam House in 1972 and made that restaurant famous, kill, killed over his calamari. So as you can see, Brooklyn is a very interesting place. Um, I live maybe a, a mile, a half mile from Walt Whitman's, Walt Whitman Park too. But as you can see, the terrain of the Brooklyn I have told you is a beautiful place, but the terrain itself is marred by historical violence. All the iconography of the neighborhood is identified by violence. Um, all the iconography is identified by former mobsters. And moving into the neighborhood as a writer 10 years ago, there was much for me to see and much for me to hear. Um, walking among the people who live in the vestiges of that past. The young man on the corner I've watched now um, from the age of 10 to 20. So I've seen him as he sort of mutated from a cute little boy into a bad imitation of Robert De Niro. And what has happened to him is that he has basically inhaled, ingested, and taken on the historical character of the neighborhood and its sort of ethnic violence. And I've watched, he goes in and out of jail quite regularly. And he has become essentially some sort of throwback. You know, so we're walking along with our briefcases, essentially going to, you know, to get our six-figure incomes. And this guy is there in the neighborhood, sort of somehow a reminder of what the neighborhood always was. As a writer and an editor, and, uh, and a writer of editorials and uh, occasionally an editor of newspapers, what strikes me about violence is a murder is, is the banality of it. 
how it no longer upsets people, how it no longer, barely even me, upsets me anymore because there's so much of it. Um, and the, the young man who goes from 10 to 20 has ingested, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of real murders, um, maybe even millions of synthetic murders via television, not to mention the iconography of his local neighborhood. The when I talk about the banality of murder, I mean the constant bombardment of it, it enters into our, ever lo into our locution, the way we speak to our children. I could just kill you. You broke that lamp, I could just kill you. I could just twist your head off sometimes. I could break your neck. You know, you only hurt the ones you love. If you bite down on that locution, I could just kill you. Sometimes you say it, some people say it frivolously, they say it in joke, you know, they're annoyed. You know, I could just kill you. Or I could just kill that Brent. He's just such a jerk sometimes. But it, it comes into our very person, into our language. You bite down on that locution, you can sometimes just feel the blood running down your throat. It's that much into us. Um, from where I stand, I think that every act of violence now leads directly, to, leads directly to murder. Every act of violence now leads directly to murder. Um, a man of my size, um, I was always, I think, conscious of bumping into people, of harming them uh, on the streets. As some of you who know my work know that I wrote very early on about being mistaken as a, crim for, as a criminal on the streets of New York. It was a constant concern to me, uh, especially since some of the people who were frightened were arms carriers. <laughs> but I've always been concerned about that. But my second concern has always been to control my temper because at this point, there's only, there used to be 20 years ago some gradient between a fistfight and murder. Now everything goes directly to murder. So we're seeing a rapid, a speeding up, an intensifying of the violent impulse. Um, part of this has to do, as a couple of my colleagues have talked about, has to do with the fact that we're, we're fed images of violence constantly. And I don't want to be as as naive and polyanthus to say, well, if the media stopped showing those violent images, people would be calmer and, you know, and more loving and caring. But the fact is that we are in, we're in a world where the local world is pretty much disappearing and that we're on this web that we just heard spoken of. And the only way to, to uh, well, one of the ways that uh, events are fed into that web are by the dramatic nature. Uh, I'll give you a, a part example from New York. For a few years, I worked as a newspaper editor at the Times before I became an editorial writer. I was an ed a newspaper editor the, on the deadest time of the week, which is Saturday morning, was when my shift began. My shift essentially started by me sorting out the murders of Friday night. <laughs> there was a pile of fax paper on the desk. I would sort them out. There was a single murder. Um, double murder, maybe triple murder, a simple shooting, and you just go through them in the morning and you sort them out. And the ones that were multiple, somehow unusual, you would essentially put into the newspaper. The rest you just scraped off into the trash and went on about your next, th your next day. When I talk about the banality of murder, that's partly what I'm talking about. This kind of a crude kind of resistance you get to the shock of seeing the dead. I could just kill you. You hear people say it on the street in the shopping mall to their kids. I could just, ki just, I could just kill you. Uh, I wanted to just kill someone one time, and there was maybe for a tenth of a second. I wanted to kill Calvin Trilling. 
Um, I was, it was 1984, I was having an interview with Calvin Trilling. He just put out a book called Killings, strangely enough. And at that, uh, just prior to that interview, I'd had a, bro a younger brother who was murdered. He was 22 years old, he was a drug dealer. And one of his former clients came up, um, drove up on him, ambushed him with a, a 44 Magnum and shot him six times. Have you ever seen a magnum hole in the back of a person's back? It's like that. These were boom, 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 boom. And I was in the, in the throes of dealing with that as a journalist, as a person and as a journalist, so I, I decided to go and do my work. So I went on my list of interviews, and I went to see Calvin Trillin, and he was always clever and jocular. And he was saying, you know, when, when someone is murdered, a noise is made in their lives that wouldn't ordinarily happen and gives their lives a different resonance, you know? And it was one of those lines that writers say to interviewees on the book tour. And that line struck me, just went in my head, started bouncing back and forth. And I looked at him, and I had my tape recorder running, because he, he was talking about murder. And I said, you know, I had a brother who was murdered just a few months ago. And uh, I kept that tape for the longest time, because Calvin, who had been a very composed person, suddenly dropped his fork and said, my God, my God, my God. And I remember this event, for me, was the first time that I had heard my grief, really, expressed in the voice of another person. But when he made light of murder at that minute, I felt murderously toward him, you know? And that was, by proxy, feeling murderously toward the person who had murdered my brother. So there's this ghostly impulse that's running through us all the time. It's in our language, it's in our, it's in our conduct towards one another, it's in our jostling on the subway. And I think that the cycle is in itself getting faster, 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 and faster. It has to do with the availability of the gun, obviously. Um, as a newspaper person, I guess, and an editorial writer, I have to make some predictions. Um, I think that murder will become ever more common in the next century. We are already the most murderous country in the Western world, but murder will become ever more common in, in the next century. Uh, I think that it may take another full century before we cycle out of it and begin to understand that we can't tolerate it at this level or the level it will get to. I also think that you will, in the intermediate future, 20 to 50 years, uh, here for the reinstatement of public execution. As some silly moralist among us think they can construct a morality tale for people who are prone to violence. But in fact, as we have more public executions, death becomes more, we become more inured to death. De murder becomes even more banal. You know, we begin at some point to walk over the bodies and never even stop. Um, I will leave it there because there's, I want to reinforce some other things, but I'll take that in the course of the conversation. Thank you. I find a lot of what is said about American violence. I think what was said here tonight about American violence is very much to the point. So much of what gets said generally about American violence is, is mysterious, as 
as American violence and the concept of American violence is mysterious. I mean, to complete the quote from D.H. Lawrence uh, uh, that uh, Mr. Wallace started with, uh, Lawrence said, but here you have the myth of the essential white American. All the other stuff, the love, the democracy, the floundering into lust, is just byplay. The essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It has just not melted. What did he mean by that? What was he saying? What was he perceiving? We have to we have to remember also that this was not in in to D. H. Lawrence necessarily a bad thing, because Lawrence was a vitalist, uh, in some ways, a kind of proto-fascist. He did not see violence as or or, or killing as necessarily. Uh, altogether reprehensible acts or the capacity to kill. I mean, he was an artist, but he was a vitalist artist. What was he onto about the American nature? What did he mean? The, the, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. Lawrence was a perceptive man. We don't really see ourselves, uh, especially when we're in a self-critical mood. I mean, us collectively, Americans, as, 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 as isolate or stoic or hard. I think we tend to see, see ourselves as, as rather pampered, as having a soft time of it, as being voluble and volatile and over-sociable. What did he mean that we are hard, stoical? and a killer. We have to imagine our way into, into that. One thing he was probably seeing that Europeans see or saw in, in America was this sense of isolation. It's, it's difficult to compare. If you try to compare the American character with the British in terms of violence, you come up against a quandary. <laughs> I mean, the British are people who rejoice in war, who are very good at it, who are every bit as good at it as the Germans, who are very good at killing. Uh, there's no ostensible reason to say that Americans are more violent than the British are. I mean, the British didn't get to control one-fifth of the world by being nice guys. They, 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 they acquired their empire by violence. Uh, wherefore is America more violent than Britain? Uh, if I were to write a book in which a man goes around stabbing to people to death while composing poetry, people would think that I had gone too far, perhaps. But 
I mean, that's what Cyrano does, right? He dreams up rhymes while stabbing people through the lungs. Uh, there isn't any kind of unique quality to America in its celebration of violence in that regard. So why do we have the situation we have and why do we have the image that we have within ourselves and outside of ourselves? Why are we perceived? Why We, we did come in to this continent determined to begin again, determined to make a new beginning. And to do that, we were reinforced by an ideology that enabled us to exercise a kind of ruthlessness that may or may not be relevant. Our frontier was settled as a lot of, uh, I mean, uh, uh, by Scotch-Irish people, people who made a specialty of subdu subduing other peoples, people who'd been recruited by the British Crown to subdue the north of Ireland, who, subdue, who subdued counties Antrim and Down by violence, and then came across the ocean and subdued the Indians on the southern frontier in the Appalachians. I mean, there was a tradition of, this was a, this was a part of Europe, a part of Western Europe, significantly more violent than the rest of, of Western Europe, perhaps. Uh, maybe that was, that was part, of the, uh, part of the heritage. And yet, it still becomes a little bit elusive when you try to get to the, to the origins of it. We had, nevertheless, that racial interplay of Indians and blacks and whites and a tradition of subduing. We also had the kind of society formed by immigration in the North, by, by, by by an immigrant proletariat, distrustful, without a common ground. All of this, I guess, served to create this particular and, and uniquely American individual sovereignty, which I, I think a word that got, was, 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 was uh, a phrase that was referred to uh, this evening. And I think more than anything else, that individual sovereignty uh, is, is a key to American violence. Uh, in most societies, I mean, I think of the, of the, of the other one I know, which is British society, this kind of the world of jolly rough and tumble, where let them fight on, let the, let the fight continue, doesn't happen here. If I invade your space or you invade my space in the United States, we have no understanding. We have no understanding between us. Our parents may have come from different countries. We may be of different races. We have nothing, we have no rules to go by. Uh, even, even people of a common blood 
and of a common heritage didn't allow each other any kind of community. So in one, in one way, I think in overwhelming measure, our violence is the result of our principal problem in the United States, which is a dreadful lack of Gemeinschaft, of community. This place is as violent as it is because it is so lacking in community. It's lacking in community for a number of historical reasons. They aren't easy to address, but they are what has brought us to this pass. We are desperately lacking in community. Also because of our ideology, our national ideology, which is printed on the money, Novum Wartum Seclorum, a new order of ages, we see a certain uniqueness about our, ourselves. Uh, we inherited this in a way. We inherited this from a number of traditions, including, including the Old Testament, which we, we, we took to ourselves. We see uh, America as unique. We see our way of addressing moral problems as wholly and thoroughly solving them. And in order to dramatize our solution to moral problems, we have usually expressed the solution in violent terms. We solved our problems with the British imperial system, with a war. We solved our differences over sectionalism and slavery with a war. As a result of those wars, our, the, the, the wrong side, the losing side, forever lost. This, this creates a kind of a mythological system in which violence is seen as the recourse. Is this thoroughly a bad thing? I don't know but I know that its practical application as reflected in the popular arts contributes to the level of violence on the street. We know that the right wing in this country likes violence, that it finds it congenial. But we have to remember that there is also a left wing tradition of violence. And the left wing tradition of violence in a way is a mirror image. Now, if you go back to, let's go back to the, to the movies, and we, we, we can't, we, we, we must not for a minute forget the movies, must we, if we're talking about violence and, and, and its perpetuation in the American consciousness. Uh, in the movies, the bad guys, what happens to the bad guys? They die. Usually they get shot. And this doesn't only happen in cowboys and in, in the movies of, of cowboys and Indians. It, 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 it is our way of punishing in, in, in our popular culture derelictions of all kinds. Even back in the days of the, of the popular front, back in the days of the, of the, uh, the 
O-W-I, the congenial, the congenial left-wing movie. The guy in the, 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 la the, the best years of our lives who said something like, we should have teamed up with the Germans to defeat the Russians. The guy who says something unpatriotic, something nasty, something reactionary, what happens to him? He is immediately cold-cocked by the hero. That is, that's what happens to him. In movies, the solution for wrong thinking, for being a bad sort of the right or the left, depending on who gets to make the movies, is always some kind of violence. In a way, our, the apocalyptic nature of our revolution our insistence on individual sovereignty extended as, as, as history continues to previously disenfranchised groups tends to encourage violence, violence from everyone. So there is, in a way, on a certain level, an ongoing approval of violence that has not stopped, that continues in the popular arts on, on every level, that, that continues uh, in every way and is being served, of course, by uh, the general availability of weapons. So I, 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 put, I, I suggest that our history furthers violence and I don't think that we have gone anywhere near to taking any steps toward disavowing violence. It's not a question of the right or the left. I think it's, 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 it's something uh, not only uh, a happenstance of uh, what has come about unintentionally in the uh, in, 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 in this country, but also the result of the national ideology. Uh, I, I also think there is a level of, uh, of mystery, and I'm very far from being able to suggest any way of solving it. Do these microphones work? Can you, can you hear me? Great. Oh, boy. So many things to talk about. Um, one of the things that struck me right away, um, especially just listening to, 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 to Robert Stone's remarks, is that many of the speakers, all, almost all the speakers in one way or another, um, captured a kind of individualized, almost diffuse character to American violence. When we stop and think about it, um, in the, in, the, in the bloody uh, annals of the 20th century, the United States doesn't, isn't exactly up there in terms of single events like the destruction of European Jewry or Stalin or um, what's happened in Asia or 100,000 Indonesians being murdered in their beds in 1965. There isn't this sense of a great cataclysmic event. Rather, there's a sense of diffuseness, of constant everyday possibilities 
linked not so much to the state, although as William Gadd said, official violence is very much a part of things, or rather when it's linked to the state, it's down at street level, rather than these great outbursts, these great events. And it, it seems to connect directly with the character of American individualism, the character of how Americans think about what they are as what sovereign individuals, that this is what gives American violence its particular cast. Is that something that anyone wants to pick up on? I remember I mean, when Brent was talking, uh, you talked, the, the situation you talked about was a murderous one. Right? Oh, yeah, murderous oh, yeah. One. And, and, and there's something about the character of American life which, which is particularly drawn to that kind of situation, a murderous one. Now, that's a particular, is, is that? Which situation are you thinking of? Well, the one with all the Italians, the two, the two Italians fighting, you know, fighting each other. It's a family fight. Well, it but was, but what the point I was trying to make there, uh, obviously didn't make it very well, is that people who haven't even, ex who haven't experienced the events on which their behavior is patterned and the events in which they're drawing from um, can stand on a street corner and reenact things um, in a way that it's almost eerie that some that some spirit some spirit of another past or another period or of Al Capone sort of crept into them and is you know sort of taking control of their person that's why I used sort of the illusion of the ghost or spirit and I think Bob was speaking with that in that same sort of vein it, it, it's like, I mean, the thing that, that occurs to me, it's like, if you invade my space, I don't owe you anything. I am not responsible for what happens to you if you invade my space. <clears throat> this is not, this is not uh, the case generally in the civilized world, but it is the case in this country, uh, and it is traditional in this country. You are on your own if you invade my space. I mean, most in, in most of the civilized world, there is this assumed. I mean, I'm 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 just thinking of the kind of of uh, uh, I, you know I don't idealize uh, Britain on on not at all, but there is this uh, there is this there's this tradition that exists in the British Isles, uh, for the most part of well, let everybody fight it out. We don't have let everybody fight it out. We have on the contrary. God knows what's going to happen to you if you come into my space and you <laughs> threaten me. I may do anything to you, and and I may and I may walk. And you deserve whatever you get. And you deserve whatever you get if you mess with me. And I mean, this is this is an aspect of popular sovereignty. It's a large a large part of American violence, is is you know is is can be summed up in that. Don't mess with me. Don't tread on me. There are uh, two things that I wanted to respond to. One of them was that, you know, you started out by saying that we were here 27 years ago talking about American violence, and it strikes me that the difference between then and now is that now everyone is more or less personally afraid and confused in a way that I don't think they were or we were 27 years ago. As a populace, I think we feel more directly threatened. And I wanted to go back, too, to that Lawrence quote, um, which I find very interesting. I mean, Bob used the word community. I may have used that word, too. But I was thinking of the word context, the idea that Americans exist with no context, that is, without much sense of 
history without much sense of dialogue about the pictures that we see in the newspaper. And that really is essentially living without community. Um, the idea of the, the American being hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer, um, I think goes back to what we were saying about the sovereignty of the individual. Um, that if you are alone, you had better be hard. And if you are alone, you had better be a stoic because there will be no one to comfort you. And if you are alone, you had better be a killer because you will need to defend your space. Um, I mean, in a sense, it's a kind of yin-yang that Americans, that it's just simply foreign to Americans. I think that the business about it has just not melted is the most interesting part of the quote, especially when you think about the idea of the melting pot and the sort of the idea of uh, such a diverse population trying to come together, intermarrying, living against one another's borders. Um, it's a, that it's a question of boundaries. It has just not melted. The boundaries have just not given. And it's also, I think about it in spiritual terms, in terms of compassion, that this sort of individual spirit that has to remain hard, isolate, and stoic in order to survive has not been able to move into the idea of compassion, which has to do with empathizing, really, with empathy. One of the things um, you're talking about, and when you were at the podium as well, that struck me is the absence of history in description. Um, and I guess as a journalist, I feel sort of culpable and responsible to respond to that. You're talking about, you know, sort of pictures being flashed before a public with no context, with no explanation, with no conversation. Now, not necessarily. I'm just saying people don't read the words. <laughs> well, I, I well, I would take it a little bit further. I, I would say for most, for most parts of the day, there aren't any words, and that the pictures were sele were selected for. Um, their broadest appeal to, and their, mm -hmm. their, their broadest value across the country. To make and words unnecessary. Absolutely. And um, I mean, that is sort of a, 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 a most modern illness, you know, extremely. But excuse me for gas. No I, no, I just wanted to comment on the dialectic of the individualism that we have here, because we're, this country is both a highly individual in its ideology ideological claims and so on, and we do have loners. We also have the loners club, which is my favorite. <laughs> um, and, 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 and all of these individuals are so quick to club together uh, and to march about being individual and lonely. Uh, and, and this is a very common American phenomenon as well, uh, in which one can see very clearly, I think, the, the constant search for community a community in which basically these people are not so much concerned to uh, achieve some uh, larger uh, uh, aim, uh, community aim by joining together, but rather losing their individual emptiness uh, by joining together. Uh, it, it's a kind of inverted uh, communal activity. And we, we have now uh, I think a kind of interesting civil war taking place in which we have armed 
rural people of uh, 30 to 50 marching about in the woods being individuals and threatened by the US government and so on. And then in the city, the urban population of kids from 13 to 20 or something armed and marching about. Uh, and, uh, also uh, threatened it, by the US government. Yes, also, oh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, more realistically, I would, the, but the I people, would think. But the people marching about in the woods, I, I'm charged to say this by, by my, uh, uh, my friend Marilyn Robinson, who comes from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. These people are not rural people. They, they went out there. I mean, uh, Marilyn, who comes from they are Coeur d'Alene. They, they are urban guerrillas who've gone oh, out to Idaho. All right. People of Idaho disclaim them. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a long uh, tradition of progressive uh, labor, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, politics in the Northwest, and Idaho shouldn't get the rap for those <laughs> I mean, I think this phenomenon of clubbing together is absolutely, I mean, it's absolutely is something that, that happens, but isn't it really relatively recent? I mean, within the past 30 years, and doesn't it really arise from the fact that people are so afraid? I mean, it is sort of, is their response to fear to sort of club together with others who seem to be like them um, but I don't think that comes from uh, the idea of a sense of community, which after all has to do with breaking down barriers and with coexisting. It has to do with putting up barriers. It's a kind of fortress mentality that's not so different from, you know, the, the fort on the frontier that was raised against sort of the other that was just seen as a threat. Well, if you were in California or Los Angeles during the riots and talked to a number of people, they would tell you that the threat to their lives and property was not at all imagined. And um, what California is what people call a, a radically sort of decentralized culture in which community is reduced to every single car and every single house. And the, the interesting thing about seeing that um, during the riots or just after was how every block, people who hadn't known each other even, were at the barricades at the corners and putting up saw horses and some even with sort of guns that weren't visible but mm -hmm. sort of readily available. And they, they were acting as though pretty much the world had come to an end and the apocalypse was now. Well, I don't think the fear is imagined at all. I, th I think the fear is real. I mean, I think people do feel directly threatened and it's a question of, you know, what is their response? Well, I mean, there's always been though, in American history, anyway, thinking back to something you said, Jane, about the old days and whether there was this clubbing together, there's, I think there has been this, um, whether it's out of ethnic groups in particular, um, gangs are nothing new. And, and gangs, in part, were based on fear even then. There was always a great, you know, in the city of New York, there was a great deal of fear if you were an Irishman or if you were, uh, that someone was going to come around and beat you up and beat up your neighborhood beat up people around you, scared of the cops. That, that's nothing new. So, so the question is, I think, I, think, I think Bill Gates puts it well when he talks about a dialectic of, indivi of individualism and, and, and community. But, but then the question I come back to is, is one that you raised, and a number of people on the panel have raised, about failure and success, because the genealogy you presented was one of failure. Mm -hmm. I think that's behind it, um, because, uh, I mean, when one resorts ultimately to uh, that kind of activity because 
of the ordinary ways of, of uh, achieving your ends are, are lost. To go back find one more time to this, the clubbing sort of thing, what, we, we sail, you know, across, we escape some terrible country, uh, all by ourselves, we arrive in the States and immediately seek out others of our own kind. It's perfectly natural. Uh, so that there's this constant tension between the two, the two uh, holes. And of course, it's what kind of uh, community we want to establish when we, uh, do we want to sort of enhance ourselves or lose ourselves uh, when we uh, make these communities. Uh, that's, uh, I think, fundamental. But I always want to go back because I think uh, all the other kind of general social problems feed through through the immediate experiences of people as they're growing up, and that's likely to be in the family. So I tend to, to domesticate it all at the beginning. Uh, it may be coming from, from the stars, but it arrives in the front stoop, and, uh, and it's there that people get an idea of, uh, of what counts, uh, how they're going to suffer, how they're going to manage to uh, avoid suffering and get their own back and all of the mechanisms of survival uh, and, uh, uh, and so on, and their sense of, of individual and uh, social uh, grouping. And uh, that's why I think, too, while uh, it's certainly not a universal rule, uh, but uh, economic uh, uh, conditions are a fundamental element here when you we're talking, We're about, talking about this, I think, just a little bit abstractly, though. I mean, for the men on the panel in particular, have you ever played contact sports? Have you ever played football? I mean, I mean, doesn't it really feel good when you come up from deep in the backfield at cornerback and you rack that sucker? No, I always getting that, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, when you're my side, I mean, it's not is, fun at all. I mean, there's, there's the racker and the rackie. Right. There's something, there's there's something in the wiring, yeah. though. I mean, there really is. Why am I there, there in the first place? Yeah, there's, right. some, there's something in the wiring, really, that makes this, mm -hmm. that, that gives an element of pleasure to it. As I said, you bite down that locution, it tastes good sometimes. You know, you have to sort of, you know, you have to sort of fight your, ap fight your appetite for the animal. Well, the in animal course, is not necessarily bad. I mean, I think yeah. that's part of what, uh, Bob was saying about Lawrence, and it's part of what you were saying, um, that it's not a question of cutting ourselves off from the animal. Um, but it's a question of sort of using that to help things melt rather than using it to simply shove each other around. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me when I was listening to um, Bill Gass's remarks about the family and about failure and failure and failure is it may be part of American individualism, that we really are supposed to succeed. After all, we're here in America. Um, everyone <laughs> should succeed. It's a, it's a mobile society, supposedly. Um, and if we don't succeed, we really become very angry. <laughs> um, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it, uh, the, that it, it, there is a disgrace uh, to being poor here that is in you know in, in uh, unknown in 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 certain societies i mean certainly in large parts of the third world it's no disgrace to be poor uh, whereas uh, all the all the 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 amenities of 
this culture seem to be offered equally to everyone and not everyone gets them. And this is deeply alienating. And it, it, probably something like that has always been always been true here. This is, this is, this is the, the downside of uh, social equality. I mean, when you, have, when you have, on the one hand, a myth of social equality and a myth which defends economic inequality, you're going to have problems. Yeah, we're all equal to seek to be superior to our brothers. I mean, and and I, I remember uh, uh, having this kind of, it's a stupid epiphany because it was late in coming, but standing in front of a class and suddenly realizing that unlike the students I was when I was going to school or even the ones that I was teaching when I started teaching, is that, that most of the, the students in, in who were well off in my university and my class were, uh, did not have the hope of surpassing their parents. Uh, this was a different kind of, of, of group. Uh, they had the, the almost certainty of not doing as well as. Uh, it changed the whole tone of things, of course. Uh, there wasn't the same kind of, of uh, promise uh, and I notice this in American students still who are getting beaten out by uh, uh, Asians, for example, and others who are coming to this country with still the sense of we can get better and we can, you know, and they are, of course. And, and so the new immigration uh, who, who haven't uh, learned yet uh, about this country um, come with this notion of still uh, uh, even if they find themselves in the slums, you know, the literature tells us the same old slums novels are being written generation after generation. As because the prize, the right. prize is still there. Yeah. I mean, it can be. The thing yeah. is, it can be done, which makes it even more galling. Yeah. If there was a level on uh, which we could tell ourselves, well, everybody's, you know, everybody's had it. It doesn't get anywhere, but the fact is it can be done. You have a student who's, a, 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 a girl who was, came to me in, in almost tears one day because... Uh, she didn't know how she could even succeed in the world because both her parents were doctors in Miami. You know, this is a heaven, dreadful heaven. thing. Heaven. But what I'm, in our all of our uh, talking, in our in our uh, speaking in sensitive tones about the past and the social socioeconomic context, are not we out of touch with most of the country? Uh, the last time I checked, 37 states had the death penalty. Um, seven of them or eight of them had reinstated chain gangs. Um, lethal injection execution are going to speed up, and New York is one of them, are going to speed up at a very rapid pace very soon. And we're going to see, we're going to see some of these indigent people who learn violence at their, at their parents' knees are going to be fried to the semi-publicly very soon. Um, so are we not sort of out of touch with the, re the rest of the country pretty want, really, I think, wants that? Oh yes, Missouri wants. What, what Missouri is now prepared to do is to allow the victims to come and watch the execution. Oh, we have the to. Next the, we we yeah. started. <laughs> the, the United States started out. Uh, remember when, what, what, why Dickens came over here first when he first yeah, came in the 1840s was to look at American prisons. The American penitentiary system was designed as a model to the world. American prisons were considered in the 19th century the most humane, the most optimistic uh, in terms of their assessment. I mean, they, they were a concurrent of, of the American democratic spirit. Uh, the first 
the first political units to do away with the death penalty were a number of mid Middle Western states in the uh, states in the Upper Middle West, some of whom have restored it. So, there's a question as to exactly how ferociously uh, the U.S. will go back to, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, in fact, it's not even going back to its primitive origins because there's always a certain there was. A, there, I mean, you have to. U, U.S. does have its origins in a certain degree of optimism about human nature. Uh, so, going back to in t total uh, uh, pu punishment, uh, abandoning the idea of reform completely and so forth, and certainly going back to the death penalty is, is, is a regression beyond, uh, beyond going back to our, our primitive origins. Our origins, I mean, we're not, uh, we're not all, the, the whole country I mean, has, has, has its origins in, 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 in different places. Uh, the upper middle west was always a relatively progressive place. I mean, as far as the world went, the deep south was always a relatively reactionary one. So we don't have a unit, we don't have a single unit here. Uh, uh, to, 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 if it goes, if it, I mean, if, if it, I mean, certainly it can be seen as a, as a, 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 an abandonment of faith in law. I mean, if more places mm -hmm. go back to the death penalty. What's well, more than that? I think, I think that uh, we're, what we're seeing is, is the uh, a final kind of adieu to the, the myth of, of reform and rehabilitation, and a resurgence of uh, public appetite for public spectacles of punishment, humiliation, and in some cases, death and torture. When Dickens came, one of the things that he was gassed about or the fact that hangings were still public, that people gathered around in squares to watch them as an activity. No, they were still public in England when he yeah. came. I mean, they yeah. were public in, in uh, if, I mean, if we, obviously, that's, 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 an, that's an opening, that's a, that's a route we can go. I mean, we can, we can, we can cater to the, the uh, uh, sadistic uh, side of, I mean, th this isn't uh, this isn't a sense of justice that's appealed to by public executions or, or public humiliations. That is obviously uh, an abandonment of civilization itself. I don't know whether uh, to what how far we'll go down that road. If we go too too far down that road, obviously we've lost a hold of civilization itself, and anything will happen to us. Well, I think we can begin to talk about American perception of violence. Uh, sort of with this topic, I'm not sure that there is such a taste for Americans wanting to watch executions unless they themselves have been victims of violent crime. I think there's a different perception of American violence. I mean, I think we have people in communities who, who see American violence as utterly random, sort of the idea of the shortened fuse that you're talking about. That you can be in some tiny town in Indiana and some marauder from Chicago drives through your town and shoots your family. I mean, that's what we constantly see reported in the news, and it's, it's sort of the level on which Americans think about violence, that something can happen at any moment, that you can be at McDonald's, or you can be, I mean, look at, uh, you know, American films, and American films are patterned on... Stranger killings. Yeah, they're, they're patterned on, and not only stranger killings, domestic killings, constantly 
sort of happen, and we talked about the theatricality of American violence, and the fact is that we are the most technologically uh, go-to it society, and the minute you record an event, a murder or whatever, you make it theatrical because you play it over and over again. It becomes theater. It doesn't become what it really was. It's uh, those people. I mean, if someone was sort of a talking head telling the story of how this happened rather than a picture of the murder, that would be a context. It would be much more like a context. It would be a story. It would be a voice. And lower rating. I, I think it's Not relevant. I, I think it's relevant that when 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 the Duke of Wellington was was asked about about uh, the, the what he thought of, of the construction of all these railroads in England back in the in in, in the 1820s and 30s, he really he, he he was against it, and he was asked why, and he said because he really opposed the idea of the lower classes wandering about mm. yeah. Beverly Hills, and in a way. Uh, uh, you know, he was thinking about, you know, that guy from Terre Haute who, you know, <laughs> gets out of the airport in, in Santa Fe. And yeah, but you've got the Menendez guys, and I mean, you've got Richard Rosenthal, and those guys uh, are like, work, you know, the, they're at the meetings with Governor Wells, and then they go home and they stake out their, you know, but I it's, mean, it's part of your, you know, it's, it's the upper classes, you know. But it's part of this, it's part of this promise, the promiscuity. The prom promiscuous wandering of all sorts of people about <laughs> uh, is 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 one of the things that makes for the general disorder that that contributes to the to, to, to the level of violence. I mean, it is. It's well, a, there's it's also this of element of mayhem um, that people are not only wandering about; they're wandering about in a crazed state, and that I mean that has to do with our perception of what a country. <laughs> of drugs, what drugs do, that when you're part of, like, you're invading my space, is that now I think when someone invades your space, you may be looking at someone that you really can't reason with, or at least that's your imagination, and so you don't even try. Um, I mean, that's, again, part of the imagination of American violence or the perception that Americans may have about violence, that it's, rather than it being something um, we can work with, that if there's a problem, you work with it. It's not a question of the good and the bad. Um, that we just don't have that perception of process and problem and problem solving. Well, I, there are many people in the audience who want to speak, and I'd hate to cut this thing off. I do want to say that it strikes me in even talking about um, community problem solving that the problem of American violence in some ways is that it does pull against other aspects of the culture which address all of those things. I mean, the, the political culture is about compromise, supposedly. It's about checks and balances. We, we internalize that. There seems to be a disjunction between you know, one part of the culture and another. In some ways, the politics of equality and perhaps the, the, the realities of economic inequality and the way that those two, those two things clash and the hopefulness that might come. But there are many more interesting questions coming out of the audience, so let me raise them there. Um, uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Do you think our era is that much different from the past? I mean, when you think of the 30 Years' War, you think of the crusades, you think of the 
random killings uh, through the ages, which we seem to, dis you know, you ha we haven't spoken of that, maybe it isn't the subject here, but it seems to me that this is not a new phenomenon. If, you, if it is, I wish you would discuss what exactly is new about the violence today, and do you think that this is very specific to our era, or is this just the usual cycle of history? Oh, gee, the usual cycle of history it always gets me in trouble. Um, people have been very violent in the past. For you know, the golden age of the, 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 you know, of, of Eden in America, let alone in the rest of the world, is is clearly a myth. And and we oughtn't to measure our own distempers as any worse or any better by measuring them against the past. That's number one. But things have changed. Things have changed in the locus of violence. I think that are. Things have changed in the locus of violence, in the you know the ecology of violence, if you will, that are that are that are tremendous. Um, I mean, if if nothing else, one thing we didn't talk we we haven't talked about are our race relations and and how American violence has changed, in some ways, seemingly for the better, in some ways for the worse. For example, to take the example of Southern lynching. Between 1882 and 1925, thousands, thousands of blacks were lynched in the South. That doesn't happen anymore. Simply doesn't happen. Are we a less racist country? As many people have said, in some ways we certainly are. But the locus of violence has shifted so that you can't you don't look there, you look somewhere else. People are living in cities in ways they weren't before. So I'm not giving a very good answer. What I'm saying is, let's not look back to the old days, yes, and say it was all hunky-dory and things have gotten worse, but things that, what, what we're seeing is a shifting location of where violence takes place, I think, and it's quite dramatic. And in some ways it's scarier, much scarier, because it can go unnoticed. That's not a good answer to your question, but it's the best one I can come up with. Last one there. Yes. You've all written about violent episodes, and I'd like to know what's on your mind as you shape a particular violent scene and you decide how you're going to represent it. Wh what your intentions are when you when you do something like that in your work? Oh, that to the novices. <laughs> well, for my in my uh, shaping of scenes, that is to make sure that I leave the terror in the scene on the page, or in the events themselves, so that they will um, be lived out inside the reader's mind. I think that's the most that's the most thing I'm always careful about. Making this, of shaping the scene so that it's almost um, deadpan as it's put down verbatim. Um, it's, for me, that's a technical concern. And uh, I'm sure that other people have other concerns. But for me, the, the scene is technical. Yeah, I would add, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, the idea is to avoid achieving in your fiction, say, uh, a shock 
that's basically dependent upon the power of the things independent of language. Uh, what you have to do is get it into the language. Uh, and that means the first thing you have to do is disarm the reality principle of the, of the event. Uh, and this is done regularly. I mean, in Greek tragedy, almost all the terrible things until the status of Greek tragedy declined took place off stage so that someone could come on and give a great speech uh, reciting it. Uh, that, I think, is, is, is uh, shrewd. Um, and uh, I always locate uh, decline in theater, for example, about uh, to the degree things are enacted in bloody observation directly on the stage and how, how much they are given over to the language. So, uh, uh, and, and frequently, uh, uh, in the best uh, uh, writers, for example, uh, this is, uh, you, what's interesting from the craft point of view is to watch them disarm uh, the situation. Uh, Faulkner has Temple Drake raped by Popeye in a corn crib with a corn cob, and some people don't even know as they read it that it happened. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant scene, um, but he was not going to trade on the shock of the event. Uh, so you have, to get, you have to get the effect into the language, I think. Should we go on if you can? Um, your question was, how do you think about representing violence? And my personal answer to that is that I, I don't think about it because what I'm trying to do is to work with language in such a way that what I'm following basically is the lit fuse as it sort of as fire eats it up because what you're trying to get to is the dynamic, the almost random seeming dynamic of violence and how it does sort of catch like a fire and move almost seemingly of its own design that that is the scary thing about violent impulse and that the writer is really going with that rather than thinking about it. I think the thing, the two things in literature most encrusted with cliche are sex and violence mm. because they are so much at the center of all literature going back to, you know, going back to the farthest way. So, I mean, you, you have got to simply find your way through that minefield. You've mm. got to reinvent it. Every time, if you're going to write about sexuality, sexual engagement, if you're going to write about violence, then you, you have a, a special responsibility incumbent on you. You have got to reinvent it because there is such a vast lore of cliché around sex and around violence that you, it, it, it becomes incumbent upon you to find a new way, if you can. You have to state to, the problem to, to correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Questions, yes, ma'am. Well, I mean, I, I, to, I, I, to, to, to presume on, on uh, 
my knowledge of life in England, where I have I don't know, a few relatives and where I spent some time, uh, there is an assumption of uh, rules. I mean, in in the in a way, there. I mean, that used to exist here. I mean, you can even go back to 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 books about the ghetto, like Perry Thomas's book uh, about uh, where you see gangs working out rules between you know, well, we're going to have shanks, we're going to have zips, we're going to just do fists or bricks or what. Uh, there is an assumption that uh, that in a bar fight, you know, well, I mean, the cops don't necessarily have to get there immediately because I mean, nobody's going to get killed. It's just it's just a bar fight. Uh, somebody 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 in in a pub for the most part, or up until recently, and this is changing. This is changing as Britain becomes a more complicated society with where where people no longer know each other's story or think they know each other's story i mean this is this is also part of uh, you know this is i mean i, I want to emphasize this is part of our part of our, our 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 level field our part of our democracy is our the, the complete mystery that we present to each other i mean uh people people in britain were presumed to know their place and it's your place if you get into a fight if you're a certain sort of person uh, if you want to stay out of prison forever, that you uh, that you that, that you that you fight by the rules. Uh, so the difference is that up until the the last couple of years, in a place like uh, England, outside of London, or and even in most parts of London, people know what they can expect if they get into a fight. They're going, there's going to be a punch up. Mm. Uh, maybe somebody will r grab a grab a glass. Uh, that's that's really fighting dirty. Uh, it happens, and if it happens, it'll be punished. Uh, whereas if we approach each other in a hostile spirit, uh, I mean, we don't we, in in New York, say, or any. I mean, we just don't know. You know, we may find ourselves being blown 35 feet. You know, with a grenade launcher. Or hit over the head with a tire iron, or uh, squirted with perfume. Uh, God knows what's going to happen. Uh, there's more of an expectation. I mean, this is, this is more of a, of a controlled society. Uh, more freedom here, if you want. Less freedom there, but. Well, there's the idea of a code of behavior, and the idea that if you betray that code of behavior, you are demeaning yourself. And there's no such code in the land of the pioneers. <laughs> you don't, you know. Senator Brown. This is with, well, with regard, God, I feel violent. Um, to the question the woman asked about uh, the cycles of history mm -hmm. and how that relates to violence and something that I think uh, is related to what Mr. Staples said about there being no gradient between a fist fight and uh, murder is the, I think, uh, the severe efficiency we've achieved. This has to do also with the image out of context. I was wondering what you thought about that. Um, as none of you are of my generation that grew up uh, with a very um, definite idea of efficiency. And that, to me, is sort of at the core of violence and which makes our violence new. 
is that um, it's completely blunt. There's no narrative. In a fist fight, there's a possibility of a narrative of some kind, just, just by virtue of the length of time. But in a gunfight or, you know, on the subway, you're done and it's over. It's image without context. I mean, we're getting so efficient that we're, it's, it's efficiency to the point of extinction. You get the image before the event. The event never even happens. So I'm just wondering what you, um, if you had any responses to that. Thank you. Uh, I would say that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I, would only, I mean, I would add a caveat. I would say that's right. I would add a caveat. <laughs> I would add a caveat to that. You know, I mean, if you wanted to, the, the, the world records for efficiency at murder, mass murder, were set, you know, earlier in the century rather than now. And it was set by, by, the, by, the, you know, by governments rather than by individuals. And so, and so we ought to be, I mean, and I remember when I was growing up, I mean, a lot of the questions that we talked about violence had to do precisely with its, with its bureaucratic nature, which was one function of efficiency. Um, and that people did all sorts of horrible, horrible things without thinking that they were doing anything wrong precisely because of its efficiency. But that was in a very different setting than the New York City subway. I think or any better by measuring them against the past. You're done, and it's over. It's image without context. I mean, we're getting so efficient that we're, it's, it's efficiency to the point of extinction. You get the image before the event. The event never even happens. So I'm just wondering what you, um, if you had any responses to that. Thank you. Uh, I would say that's right. <laughs> 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 I, would, I, would only, I mean, I would add a caveat. So that's right. I would add a caveat. <laughs> I would add a caveat to that. You know, I mean, if you wanted to, the, the, the world records for efficiency at murder, mass murder, were set, you know, earlier in the century rather than now. And it was set by, by, the, by the, you know, by governments rather than by individuals. And so, and so we ought to be, I mean, and I remember when I was growing up, I mean, a lot of the questions that we talked about violence had to do precisely with its, with its bureaucratic nature, which was, one function of efficiency, um, and that people did all sorts of horrible, horrible things without thinking that they were doing anything wrong precisely because of its efficiency. But that was in a very different setting than the New York City subway. I think he means efficiency differently, though. What he, mean, he, what he means is, is, is skill and shortest elapsed time. I mean, he means, he, means, right. he means shot in the heart between the eyes very quickly before anything can even formulate before conflict can even be formulated. And that's exactly what I was talking about. I mean, right. I mean you, one best now, you know, step around people um, if, before any words can be exchanged, you know? And that's what he right. means by efficient. He means quick right. and to the point. Right. Oh, and almost random. Yeah. Um, Jerry. And that interests me is its connection to American innocence. Um, I'm a book editor, and a few years ago, I published a biography of Audie Murphy, a hero of my childhood um, in a kinder, gentler Brooklyn. Um, and we all went around playing war and imitating Audie Murphy. Well, Audie Murphy um, you know, dispatched about 150 German uh, soldiers to their rest. He was one of the most efficient killers ever produced by the American Armed Services. And then Life Magazine and the media got a hold of him and uh, put him on the cover uh, of the magazine and sent in, and took pictures of him in the soda shop back in Texas. And none of it showed. 
you know, that he had killed 150 people and he was going to go back to his all-American uh, boy life. And, um, you know, part of the biography was getting under that all-American all boy life. But I wonder whether you feel, as I certainly do, that, that part of the quality of American violence is connected to American innocence, which is connected to American sense of self-righteousness. Um, and I think that whether that plays out in the personal day-to-day uh, -day level and in, um, in the social level. I'm interested I, in Bob Stone's ideas. Since I, I really don't believe in American innocence. I think American innocence is, is, is a notion uh, that comes about as a result of a misunderstanding between the United States and, <laughs> and the rest of the world. I mean, I, I, I don't see how there can be, given American, I mean, how much innocence can possibly remain to us given, given the fact that we, you know, I mean, between the, be, between, between the time we get up in the morning and the time we go to bed at night in America, I mean, how innocent we, can we be? I mean, as opposed to, let's say, somebody who does the same thing in a different country. I mean, our history has been bloody and complex. I mean, one thing we might ask I is mean, why is there this desire that we be innocent? What is so wonderful about being about being innocent? It implies to me um, ignorance, and it implies a lack of responsibility, and it implies a lack of uh, of understanding, and a lack of sort of grasping how complex. I don't know, the processes of life really are. Yeah, I think partly, too, what you're talking about is, is, is compartmentalization, because uh, it's not just an American thing to uh, have a sanctioned killing field, and then you go home or you go somewhere else, and you leave all that behind. The Nazis did this all the time, uh, very good family people, pillars of the this or that, came home from, uh, you know, uh, butchery uh, and uh, uh, left it all at the office. And, and this kind of ability to compartmentalize and return to what uh, appeared to them to be a normal life after, uh, I think is, uh, uh, so we often say, gee, these poor GIs in Vietnam didn't do that as if it were something bad they did because they didn't compartmentalize. They came back wrecks, as any human being should have, you know? Well, that's partly because they, they weren't imbued with the notion that they were killing for good. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when, you talk, when we talk about sure. innocence, I think that's, that's the key to mention here. We're talking about the difference between mm -hmm. killing for good and killing, for, uh, and killing on the side of wrong. And those distinctions have always been very clear. And, and they, you know, we, we were always, until Vietnam, able to say to people, well, you were killing you know, you were subduing evil, and um, and you were coming. You know, you were flying the flag of right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the issue of uh, of language has just barely been touched upon, and uh, as somebody who uh, grew up not very good at football or baseball, but fairly good at speaking, I've often lamented the fact that uh, speaking was not our national sport, words, language. And uh, I think this plays itself out in the films, too. 
because so much of the images that are blasted our way on the screen uh, are a kind of uh, a shorthand. You know, instead of writing that long speech, why don't you just have the guy pull out a gun and do it quickly? And I wonder how much of, of our violence has to do with the fact that we haven't paid greater tribute to the power of language and honored that more and made it a little bit more cool. Because right now, it's not cool to use words. In fact, it's the fewer you use, the cooler you are. <laughs> so, you know, let's, let's trace that. You know, I'd, I'd like to hear what, what some of you think about that. Well, none of us that. think that here. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, we all think that obviously. the better you talk, the cooler you are. But we're not cool. <laughs> That's a frontier uh, uh, attitude, too. That is, no question. The, the, the person who had lots of fancy talk uh, was not trustworthy. Right. Uh, might be the blunt, you know, guy yep. didn't have much to say, but who said the few things and, and went, and actions always spoke louder and all of th this sort of thing. Uh, I, I have these uh, constant images that I'd love to do a play. Henry James, you know, on the frontier. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, <coughs> Talk of the uh, death. Well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. My good man, whether you're pointing what is it and so on. Uh, and, and, and you're quite right. It would be less violence. I mean, it would be a better world. And the scenes would be very long. Yeah. <laughs> Ruggles of red gas. Yeah. But a friend of mine has a, has a little uh, boy who's in kindergarten and he, the other day and he bit someone. He bit one of the other students, and the teacher said to him, no, 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 when you're angry, use your words, use your words. And he, and he looked at her and he said, I left my words at home today. <laughs> and while she was looking, he, he, he made the motion of a little truck in the air, and he said, you know, he made engine sounds. He said, oh, here comes the truck with my words. Yeah. <laughs> words can, of course, uh, 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 do the opposite to, uh, uh, to, to balance it. I, I remember the, the account that little Rainer Maria Rilke gave of his, his, his boyhood, me being at a military school, and he was such a prig, and, uh, and they apparently, or at least his story is, liked to bully him and beat him up, and he would always say, he reported to his mother, that when, while you were beating me, I prayed to, uh, to our good Lord to forgive you, whereupon they beat him some more. You know. <laughs> All is forgiven. Yeah. Leaving, can you hear me? Yes. Leaving words at home reminds me that in intense conflict, it uh, usually seems kind of silly if somebody suggests go talk to the school bully, work it out. Um, and there seems something really palpably gratifying in physical violence. And I haven't heard anybody mention what recourse people have other than that. Well, I think we have mentioned recourse. Um, I think community, context, communication is recourse to violence. I mean, and I think the, the kinds of recourse people use has to do with community. If in the community there is a stated acceptance of 
when the bully pushes somebody down, the bully and the kid who was pushed down and the teacher and the parents of the two kids sit down and talk, or just the bully and the kid and the teachers sit down and talk, um, it may not change the bully's behavior, um, but then again it might. I mean, but if you're not in a community, and that's in this country probably a rather elitist private school perhaps community, which would handle that kind of violence that way or notice that kind of violence on a school playground. Um, I don't think we're saying there's no recourse, but I'm, I think we're saying that without community and without context, recourse often is never even sort of picked up as a right. response to violence. I think for many, many people in the, in the sort of more disastrous sections of New York and other cities, um, the parents who are successful in keeping their children out of violent exchanges and out of lives of violence are the parents who explain to the kid partly what I just said at the podium, that you may lose face for today or you may lose face for the month or for the entire school year. But if you get involved in an exchange with this person, it's quite likely that you'll end up dead. And so what I would like you to do for me is to walk around this person and, and walk the other way and essentially become the loner and stay out of what the, what the, the community that's been constructed, the community of violence. And the parents who are successful with kids, I mean, get that, get that idea across. In many contexts, the, there's two, there are two options. One is to indulge and get it over quickly. Um, the other is to com remain completely dissociated from the people in the context and, you know, you know read or just walk and daydream. Uh, I, uh, to, just to add something quickly to that, uh, uh, Fox Butterfield has just written a book, an extremely interesting book called All God's Children, which, is, uh, which is, traces the history of the Bosquet family from South Carolina to, to down through, uh, down to uh, Willie Bosquet, who is presently in the New York prison system, the most uh, self-proclaimed and, and generally admitted most violent prisoner in the system. In the course of it, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a fine book, and it's a great analysis of American violence, uh, black and white, uh, he, he, um, he makes a distinction. He tries to make a distinction in, in, in society between, between the idea of honor and the idea of dignity. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the peasantry of the Mediterranean world, I mean, I mean, in 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 the peasant societies of, of of Europe, in the old South, the idea of honor. Uh, a man who had nothing, who had, I mean, uh, who, I mean, this this goes this goes back really to the Iliad. He uh, he had nothing but his honor. He was compelled to fight when that was challenged. He had he had to. He had to. He had no choice. He was going to exist because to give that up was to cease to exist. And that, that was, whereas someone more substantially located in the world, somebody with a little more to stand on, had their dignity, their dignity as a citizen. And this is one thing that, this is one thing that a civilized society is supposed to convey on its citizens is dignity. But so many people don't have that. In well, that. this is what this is the thing to cleave to, so that so that somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you're a lying son of a bitch. 
you don't feel as you would have in South Carolina in 1850, the absolute necessity, if you were to continue to have any kind of social existence or self-respect, to kill that person. <laughs> you, you would simply say, the man is mad, and, and walk around him, and that's the difference. But you couldn't. I mean, if you were a, you know, if you were a a, 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 a man of substance in South Carolina, Georgia, the American South, uh, you know, a, a, a plantation owner, or for that matter, if you were if you were a slave, if your if you, if, if your social equivalent came up to you and said, "You're a lying son of a bitch," whether you were a slave or whether you were the master of many plantations, you had to kill that man if you were going to show your face in public. Whereas uh, in, in the society that wherein democracy bestowed dignity upon a person, you simply were not, you were supposed to rise above that necessity. Uh, you were supposed to be, you were supposed to have that dignity bestowed on you, and that is the thing. I mean, that is, that is kind of the thing we're after. When we, when we want to limit violence, we want to, to limit the necessity of a child or an adult to respond with violence to a formula which was automatically mm -hmm. designed to produce a violent response. To be able to maintain self-respect while walking away. I mean, the man in South Carolina, you know, black or white at that time, the, 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 the man in the, in the ghetto today cannot walk away from that, or he may feel that he cannot walk away from that and keep his self-respect. We want a world, I mean, we want to enlarge the world in which a man can walk away from that and keep his self-respect. It's not, it's not always easy, I mean, even, even when it's uh, an available option. We want a world in which a woman can walk at all. <laughs> uh, so several more hands. There's one and there's another. Yeah. Yes. I'm from Ireland, so I just to offer a Ireland, and I just wanted to offer a different perspective. I think there's been some talk of innocence. But I think more innocence is being ascribed to countries like, um, like Britain, for example, than really they deserve. Um, in England today, there is pernicious, chaotic, terrible violence that goes on all the time in the shape of, for example, football hooliganism, which is absolutely appalling. And it's completely, there is no honorable contract. It, there's no rough and tumble. These characters arrive, and it's not even just at football matches. I mean, they can, uh, they can arrive on a train or in a train station or anywhere at all. And their agenda is, is to maim, not even to kill in a straightforward way, but to maim and to hurt. And I think that should be borne in mind. It's not all sort of jolly knight errantry in merry old England. Um, and uh, in terms of, of the, the points that have been made about language, I think you're doing yourselves down because the Easter Rising of 1916 in Ireland was caused by language. Just to show you, it was a rising of, of poets and speech makers, and that's always been the tradition in Ireland, that violence has been unleashed as a result of a good old rousing speech or a poem. You know, bloodshed is a sanctifying and a cleansing thing, said Portrick Pierce. And, um, and Yeats spoke of his poem, Kathleen Nehulon, did that play of mine send out certain men being shot? 
Well, he had a guilty conscience, and because it was true, it did. So just maybe that you get a, a different way of looking at your own society from these, these points. Well, Hitler's rhetoric was also very much a part of, uh, of the violence of that world, and that was certainly dependent upon language. Uh, you're right. I think, though, there's a one way in which things have changed. Well, I would disassociate myself in the name of the dead generations. So I disassociate myself from that response. Um, 20, 20, 27 years ago, there probably would have been some intellectual maybe not on this panel, but somewhere saying a lot of good things about violence. And, and that, that's a change, I think. I mean, Patrick Pierce isn't on the scene today in America, at least among the, the intellectuals. Um, when Bob Stone said before about the, there being a left-wing version and the right-wing version of this, I think that if, 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 if there's been one change for the better, you just don't see that kind of talk around much anymore uh, among Americans. extent that one that I can at least recall, maybe I maybe others disagree, but I think it's there's been a palpable shift about that. At least it isn't as respectable as it once was. No, you don't see it among writers and intellectuals, but you certainly see it uh, amongst those militia guys in oh. Idaho who are sort of It was a very limited uh, a pri uh, uh, right. um, I wasn't trying to be Pollyannish. <laughs> but at least at least we've cleaned up our act um, in, in some ways. Or there's been a shift. There has, been a, there has been a palpable shift. Um, and, and why that is, I, I, I don't know. But I sense it. Uh, Post-industrial situation that we're trying to sort out. And the fact that for 40 years after World War II, we were so far ahead of the rest of the world economically that Americans had a sense of security and identity and a feeling of strength and power and um, uh, success that they no longer have and that we're kind of drifting as a country right now and that we haven't, uh, the trickle-down effect of that is that the blue-collar workers are suffering the most, probably, and, um, you know, most of the people in this room are probably pretty comfortable, but the identity of uh, labor and the uh, dignity of that is gone. I think uh, what's slowly replacing it uh, hasn't yet trickled down uh, effectively. And um, I think that the, um, the American identity, since the 80s when um, Europe and Japan and uh, other economic powers began to compete with our very strong corporations, um, uh, you know, it, it really changed things, and, and third world countries began taking jobs and, and so forth, and I think that the anger um, is that the American myth is no longer true, um, and people are wondering, uh, what is the future? And there's a kind of void um, that has been filled with all sorts of um, nonsense, which is usually what happens when there's a void. Uh, so... Um, I'm just wondering, uh, we, uh, a few people touched on the idea of an economic issue and a competition issue, um, and um, I think it's even much that, that the current pervasive feeling is one of powerlessness, one of um, uh, even a sense of right and wrong is not entirely clear. Uh, 
I think it was about two years ago when a subway passenger was attacked and killed his attacker. I don't even remember the name of the person, but there wasn't. A, there were two sides that were very, um, both very articulate in defending the rights of the victim and the defending the rights of the uh, person who uh, went from victim to um, attacker. So I think that um, maybe that's what's happening right now. I, I, I agreed with the woman who spoke earlier that historically we're not more violent than many, most other cultures. We're probably less violent historically. Um, and like the Romans, we like to watch violence. It's part of our entertainment. But there's a long history of, of that type of violence. But what's going on now, I think, is specific uh, to the economic condition that hasn't been sorted out. Well, I don't know if you can sort out an economic condition. Uh, just to string two things together, um, my colleagues are speaking about uh, uh, writers' attitudes toward violence in the late 60s and now, and they've changed. Um, but I think looking back, a lot of writers in the late 60s were um, unaware that they were romancing and praising thugs and killers, too. And I think that's become ever more apparent um, as that sector of the population has grown. I mean, uh, under understandable conditions, but that sector of the population has grown. And I, I do, I, just to add a note of depression to the proceedings, let me just say that um, the economic well, recently, we've, we, recently we had a big uh, news cycle before in June about uh, homicide being down in New York. I don't know if you saw that those are the big front page stories about homicide, you know, a 20-year decline in homicide, and the, and the police commissioner came out and took credit because we have new community policing and we're doing a great job. And we're, um, It was almost laughable to me because that was clearly a demographic dip, that in fact uh, you had decline in homicide because the people who were doing the homicide were 10 times more likely to be killed in homicides. And you were depleting the ranks of killers with, homi with homicide itself in jail. Um, so that's what that was about. Um, I think you, when you're talking about sorting out an economic condition, um, we're not, in a, we're not in, a, in a climate where anything will be sorted out. What's going to be sorted out is in vast areas of the culture are going to remain as they are, they're going to remain killing fields. Vast areas of the cities are going to remain killing fields in which there is very little intervention by police, only managing of killing, as one detective told me recently, um, and, and uh, praying for what they call public service homicides, that the most violent people get knocked out. So we're going to be looking at you know, killing fields for a long time. And as those populations are depleted, as those populations are depleted, through jail, through homicide, through you know, up, you know, stepped up executions, we may get that matter under control. What you're talking about is the kind of self-genocide of a generation. Pardon? It's a seemingly a self-genocide of a generation. Well, you call it what you call it. I mean, I'm just describing the scenario I see. Oh, yes. Is it, there's a mic, is there a microphone around? Just a sec. She's got the microphone. I, 
just wanted to ask you about the media's role in this in terms of pushing things to the extreme, which I think the media tends to do in, in advertising as well as television movies, and how that somehow has some effect on people's behavior. In terms of rock musicians even pushing their music to a certain... Everybody seemed to like pushing things as far as possible. And it's like there's something in our culture, I think, that seems that wants people to do that. Let's see how far we can go with this. And where does, where does the, what is the history behind this? Is, I mean, I can see this as far as the media going, but if there's something else historically in our culture that wants that to happen. I think it's, we're in a moment, culturally, historically, we're in a moment sui generis, I mean, unparalleled in the history of the species. Um, we can be wired into some, you know, 500 channels at once, and you know, transponders in our brains, and you can walk down the street and listen to Nine Inch Nails on your CD player, um, and you can watch it on the on the giant TV screen in Times Square. Um, we we're in a moment of trying to find out um, how much, how, trying to determine how much stimula stimulation is too much, you know, and where the line is, and that that's a very jagged line right now. Um, but one of the pro as a as a media person. One of the things that upsets me is when people begin to blame violence on the media, because I, I tell them that the media, the media itself almost doesn't exist, really. It's just the, it's like your epidermis, you know? Um, we are essentially grafted onto body and soul, a part of the culture, you know, a part of the air. And, um, you know, so we're all together in some organic process, and uh, right now it's not going so well. Somebody else has something to add before. Uh, this is an awfully grim note on which to end. I'm sorry. But no, <laughs> it's not your fault. Um, um, no apologies needed. I want to thank everybody for turning out. Um, grim as it's been, I think innocence is nothing we should um, celebrate to. or cling to, cleave to. Um, so I, I, I thank everyone for coming out. Okay. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> we, we don't have to. Day. Night. K N I T. Was this night? N Y T. N Y T.